This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. Today, I have a really exciting story and lots of lots of fun stuff to t- discuss with um, my guest today, Trisha Lewis. Welcome, Trisha. How are you? Hi. Hello, Annie Grace. I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. It's a good, beautiful, sunny day. So I can't complain. That makes one of us. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Yeah, I just got back from um, Tennessee, and we had like six days of rain. Like, I just did too. Oh, okay, I wonder if we were at the same conference. Were no, I, I totally would have seen you there. <laughs> okay, but yes, you know the the rain, the floods. It was it was. A it real, was crazy. Yeah, yeah, completely crazy. crazy. So now I'm like, oh, we're so spoiled in Colorado with our 300 sunny days, but. Awesome. Well, let's dive into it. And uh, for like, I always start like, just walk us back all the way to the beginning in your story. Like, where did it all start for you? And you know, what happened? Yeah. So I'm just your typical garden variety, high functioning, codependent, perfectionist, overachieving alcoholic. (laughs) And, you know, I think the two biggest defining factors that made it so difficult for me to come to terms with having a problem was that um, I grew up around somebody who was the very definition of a low functioning addict and alcoholic. And I spent 20 years in the restaurant industry, which is also a very skewed, um, you know, look at what is normal drinking. You know, when you're around people that drink so much, it's hard to diagnose what your own problem should look like. So um, yeah, growing up around, uh, you know, I had a sibling who was a very, very active alcoholic and drug addict. And just like a typical codependent, you know, daughter and sibling, I loved to try to overcompensate for the mess that my brother was making. And I, you know, was an overachiever, a perfectionist, huge people pleaser, and loved to make sure that everybody else's needs were met. How else can I calm the waters today and, you know, put my own needs aside? And uh, those habits started pretty young and there's something that I'll probably be working on forever. But I will say that when I had my first drink um, was actually when I first got drunk. I was pretty much always drinking to get drunk from the moment I, I first uh, tried alcohol. You know, at 16, my very first um, teen love, my, my first serious boyfriend dumped me. And uh, we, I ran into him at a party and I knew that he didn't like it when his friends drank. So I thought, well... Um, if he can't, if he's not going to love me, then I want him to hate me, you know, which points out our extreme thinking, you know, everything is black or white. Um, I wanted to, um, I didn't want to feel the feelings I was having and I wanted to try to control, um, everything around me and the way that people saw me. And, you know, at 16, I don't know a lot of 16 year old girls who slammed three shots of whiskey at their first high school party, but that's where I started. And that was kind of my that was kind of, you know, how I, how I drank until I quit 20 years later. So, uh, you know, I, so I, as I said, I was in the restaurant industry again, over just overachiever, good grades, always had two or three jobs, worked hard, played hard, would be out drinking late, late, late and get up and, you know, go to work the next day and, you know, work as, as hard as I had party the night before. 
And what, you know, in the restaurant industry, that's socially acceptable. I think that especially most women, we would wear our tolerance for alcohol as a badge of honor. And I, you know, absolutely. You just want to be one of the guys. And, um, but I, yeah, I was just never a normal drinker, but I, you know, I blacked out pretty frequently. I wouldn't say that, um, I'm definitely a different person when I drink. I just had riskier behavior. I did things I normally would never do. And I, I sort of started to feel like something was a little different in my mid twenties. Like I wasn't drinking like a normal person should. And, but again, when you're around people that drink so much more than you, how do you diagnose what is a problem, especially when you're not suffering the consequences of what the stigma shows you an alcoholic looks like. This is what I wrestled with for years. This was the hardest part for me in quitting drinking was just deciding that my problem was big enough. Mm -hmm. And if there's one thing I can stress to anybody who's listening, it's that you don't have to look at everybody else around you and judge your drinking by how much they're drinking. You get to decide, period. End of story. And I, I wish that I had the confidence to just bite the bullet and do it. Um, when I, uh, again, as an adult, you know, I was a business owner, achieve, 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 perfectionist, people pleaser, those things just never left my body. My drinking got pretty bad in my mid-30s. Um, I went through a very unexpected surprise divorce. And, you know, right back to that 16-year-old girl, I didn't want to feel those feelings and I drank to not feel. But because you're going to work every day and wearing expensive shoes and drinking expensive wine, it's not a problem, right? You know, it does, even if you're waking yeah. up in the morning covered in bruises and you don't remember anything, it doesn't matter because nobody else knows you have a problem. I mean, it, it, it was a double life. After a while, it was a double life to keep up with my drinking and keep up with achieving during the day. So this, um, this anxiety of trying to compartmentalize and manage these two things and always try to control the way that other people saw me. You know, I didn't want to come across as an alcoholic um, or somebody with a problem because I had dealt with that my whole life. And I knew with that, you know, I would just, I wanted to, to curate this perfect image for people. And um, yeah, I'd say about, I was 35 when I quit. And it just got to the point where I was drinking and I was, I was blacking out most times when I drank. Sometimes it would happen after three or four drinks. Sometimes it would happen after 14. Mm. I, couldn't, I couldn't necessarily say that I was going out and doing anything wild. I was probably pretty boring. Um, but I just know that when I, when I drank the first drink, I never knew it was going to happen after that. And I just stopped leaving the house after a while. I just quit going out and drinking because I was becoming such a risk. I was always falling. I was always injuring myself. And, it, and I was always so anxious about like, it wasn't about going out and getting drunk. It was about going out and trying not to get drunk. That I was so anxious. Like it was, it was, it got to a point where I wasn't even enjoying it. I was just afraid of drinking every time I did it. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I went on like a three month bender, just major drinking every night. You could say that it looked like a very social, social life. That was it. I wasn't doing anything crazy, but I was really drinking heavy and doing it in, uh, in groups of people and making it look great on Instagram and making it look great on Facebook. And like, again, curating that image that we all want. Until one day I woke up and started three days of physical withdrawals and I'm a petite lady. And I know that, um, after, you know, I've only got this one body 
And after a while, you, you can't negotiate with alcohol anymore. I mean, I pushed that boundary for way too long and I could not negotiate with what it was doing to my body. So um, I would say that I kind of knew I had to quit drinking someday. That was always kind of part of the plan. And after finishing three days of withdrawal, which just felt like the flu, um, it was awful. <laughs> that scared the daylights out of me. And I was like, all right, well, I guess we're doing it now. And I sort of psyched myself out of it. You know, like I, it wasn't this big planned, like I'm going to quit someday, like, or I'm going to quit on this day. It just happened. And I was three days into it and I was like, okay, it's go time. And Annie, I started recovering as hard as I drank. I, mm. think, that, I think that most alcoholics or problematic drinkers or whatever name you want to give yourself, I think most of us have the ability to recover just as well and just as hard as we drank. And uh, that was a little over two years ago. Um, I leaned heavily on podcasts. Um, thank you for yours. Um, you know, Paul with Recovery Elevator was a big part of my, of my journey. And, um, you know, I just finally came out and asked for help because I'd spent my whole life doing everything myself. No, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. No, I got this. I'm fine. I mean, like if I had a an autobiography, it'd be called, like, don't worry about me. Everything's fine. You know? <laughs> right. So yeah, I finally just decided everything was not fine. And I asked for help and I took the help and I tried as hard as I could. And this is the best life I've ever had. Oh, that's so cool. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, so a few things that I kind of want to dig into in there, like, I really like how you talk about this, like afraid of drinking. And it's such an interesting thing that I don't think I've, I've heard like put into language in that way before. But as soon as you said it, I can remember that. Like it was almost like I was afraid of both things, afraid of not drinking and afraid of drinking. And it was like, which, which one was going to gain more, you know? And it was this voice in my head that said, okay, well, this time is going to be different. This time is going to be like, it's not going to be like it was before. This time we're, you know, more in control or this time just effort and who cares because this is too much effort to try to try to work anyway. But anyway, I really, I really appreciate how you um, put that into words because I think that's really true. Like you get to a point where being like, you aren't enjoying it to the point that you're literally like, Oh, this again. Okay. I'm here again. Like, I mean, what? there was, there was genuine fear when I thought about starting my night. The last the last Friday of my drinking career, I went out on a party bus for a friend's birthday party. And I was, you know, I was alone. I was with a bunch of couples and I didn't have anyone to take care of me anymore. You know, like, and I remember for like two solid weeks leading up to that party, which should have been a great time. You know, you're out on a bus with friends and it's a birthday party. Like parties are fun. I was so anxious and nervous again, because I just didn't know what happened when I drank. It was just like, what's, what's going to be in Pandora's box this time. And I had developed this thing, this drinking problem that had become so strong that eventually it became stronger than I was. And that's where the fear was. It was like, Oh God, I developed this thing and now it's bigger than me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you don't, you don't think about going out and getting drunk. You think about looking at your glass and making sure that you're not drinking faster than everyone around you. You know, there was just nothing but fear and anxiety around drinking at that point, but you had to do it, you know, because you'd be anxious if you didn't, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. Um, 
And then the other thing that I was like really curious about, because it comes up a lot and I admittedly just don't know a lot about codependency. So I was wondering if you could like give some more color on like what, what is that? Like, how does that manifest? What does that sort of look like? Yeah. So codependency, you know, the name often gets misconstrued and you think codependent, like, oh, you must depend on people all the time. You must need to be with other people. And it's not at all. Um, Codependency is basically your own addiction to solving everyone else's problems and meeting everyone else's needs before your own. You become so obsessed with um, calming the waters pleasing other people, making sure that everyone else is happy until you are so far down on that list that your own physical needs, your own mental health needs, everything is just the last thing you think about. And essentially you're living your life to fix other people. And um, that'll catch up with you too. (laughs) Interesting. So it's almost like like people pleasing, but to the max, because what other people's opinions of you matter more than your opinions of yourself. Yes. Well, and also when you look at it just as a direct, um, uh, in direct relation to addiction, like this is what the rooms of Al-Anon, you know, handle. It's the spouses of the alcoholic. These are the codependents. These are the people that have spent their lives trying to enable and make, um, make the lives of their alcoholic loved ones so peaceful that they've now become such a an integral part of this sick and twisted dynamic. And you mean the best. You really do but you end up being so destructive towards yourself and eventually the people around you as well. I mean, you can legit love somebody to death. So basically this looks like, you know, stepping on or like walking on eggshells. Um, yes. Yeah. Staying out of the way. Yeah. You know, I always say that I was always just trying to like do a little dance for everybody. Like, what do I have to do? What kind of dance do I need to do for you today to please you, to make you happy, to make sure everyone's fine you know, for, for me and for a lot of codependent siblings, that came in the form of achievement. You know, how mm. high can I get my grades? How involved can I get in school? What, you know, even as an adult, what can I accomplish? Can I start another business? Like, you know, what, what new passion project can I come up with? Um, it's going to take a long time to, to, <laughs> to break this habit, but, but quitting drinking was a very important first step. <laughs> and so... In this, like for people who are wondering if, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's resonating, I guess, um, like the high achieving stuff like that. Like, what is, what is the goal? What is it that, like, what is the need you're fulfilling? What are, what are you going for? At, like the human level that causes it manifesting in all these sorts of ways. Um, what is the human goal in codependency? Yeah. That's a really good question to ask. Um, I think that it probably starts out with just trying to avoid as much confrontation as possible. You know, confrontation is scary for a lot of people. Even just communication is scary for a lot of people. And I think that anything that stirs up any sort of feeling of discomfort, you want to avoid that when you're codependent, you know, and, and then, you know, that just builds on itself and builds on itself to where you don't want to say anything that could cause discomfort for anyone around you or yourself. Interesting. Um, I guess that's also just another way to avoid having to feel uncomfortable feelings or make uncomfortable decisions, even though they would be decisions that would better everybody and, you know, be the, be for the best in general. 
That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I honestly like the term comes up a lot and I keep having it on my list of things like really look into and understand what this is, but just, I've never even, I think scratched the surface. I guess my, if I would have before this, you know, five minutes of conversation, I would have thought, okay, codependency is the need to consistently be in relationships so that you don't feel alone. Um, and that's not, not even no, really. No. And, and I'm sure that someone is going to have a YouTube comment and, and tell me everything <laughs> that's wrong. Um, all I can say is my own experience right. in, you know, in both the rooms of AA and Al-Anon. But, you know, for example, if you're working the 12 steps as a member of Al-Anon, you know, you're basically treating your addict, your alcoholic, whoever your loved one is, as your addiction. And, you know, like just doing whatever kind of dance you need to do to accommodate them becomes your addiction. Got it. Really interesting. And so if, if somebody is, this is resonating, they're like, oh, that might be me. I've definitely struggled with that. Um, where would you say, would, would you recommend Al-Anon then? Or like, is there other resources you have or that you'd recommend? You know, um, Melanie Beattie's book, The Language of Letting Go, I think is a really important book for anybody that's ever been in a relationship or been related to somebody who has a problem with drinking or drugs. Um, I think that that book is pivotal. There's also a daily devotional version of it. Um, if you don't have a huge attention span, uh, like myself. Um, and, you know, I've done Al-Anon, um, probably not as much as I should. I personally found Al-Anon meetings totally miserable. God bless you if you love them. I'm, they work for some people. Um, I've had a lot more fun in the rooms of AA. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, it's actually kind of sad, you know, when you have an Al-Anon meeting going on next door to an AA meeting and you hear like the moans and the cries of the Al-Anon people and then you hear everyone in the AA meeting laughing their asses off and, it, <laughs> and it's so sick and twisted. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I would, I would start, um, you know, by, by Googling Al-Anon and also um, the language of letting go. Those are my two faves. Awesome. Awesome. That's so helpful. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. So um, I think, yeah, so you have done some pretty incredible things in your two years. Like you said, you dove in like with both feet and you are just, um, so yeah, why don't you tell us about what you're up to now? Sure. Well, typical um, overachieving entrepreneur, you know, <laughs> had to develop a bunch of passion projects. Um, I started a podcast six months ago called Recovery Happy Hour. And there's so many great podcasts out there. There are so, I'm in such good company. But um, I wanted to focus mine on what happens after you quit drinking. There's so many great ones about quitting drinking and the stories of while you're drinking. But, you know, the fear of missing out is such a huge deterrent for people from ever even taking that first leap or even just trying it, even knowing that you can still change your mind and go back. Um, so I wanted to focus on the fear of missing out, uh, you know, that life doesn't end after you quit drinking. And also what are we learning once we put the bottle down? Because if alcohol is but a symptom, let's get to the root of the issue. What are the real life issues that we have to focus on? And, and just celebrating that, hearing people's stories, you know, digging into this whole idea of gray area drinking, you know, this, this, this buzzword, but it's so, um, it's so important to talk about, you know, I talk a lot about taking ownership of the fact that you can just decide to quit drinking. You don't have to fit into one box. You don't have to identify as an alcoholic. You, if you have one drink a month, and you don't like that, you can still decide that alcohol is no longer serving you. So sort of 
trying to break out of this black or white, um, you know, alcoholic or normal drinker, just break out of just those two options as our only two options and, and just, and identify that we can all reevaluate our own relationships with alcohol and recover accordingly. There's no right or wrong way to do this anymore. So, um, yeah, we just, I dig into a lot of those topics on recovery happy hour and, I love to focus on the fact that life does go on. I mean, last night, I, yesterday, actually the entire day, I had so much fun. It was a big self-care day. I got to do some shopping. I, I got to buy some Doc Martens that I'd had my eye on since like 1996. You know, I went home and I had like six different types of drinks. I put on a Care Bears onesie because it was cold outside. And, you know, and I just, I actually like am living my life now. The irony is we think that life is over once we stop drinking, but really that's when you start living. Cause I was drinking on my couch alone all the time and that's boring. No one wants to hear yeah. that story. <laughs> that's awesome. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And then in with recovery happy hour, uh, I met a gentleman named Chris who owns Sands bar, which is a pop-up sober bar in Austin. And we put our little recovery heads together and created an event in mid-March coming up in about two and a half weeks called sober by Southwest. And it is during South by Southwest weekend. I have to say that we are an unofficial event. We are not affiliated with the license name South by Southwest, <laughs> but we have our unofficial uh, independently produced event called Sober by Southwest. And we are just putting on a daytime event full of live music, Austin, Texas vibe, shots of B12, arcade, food trucks, you know, you name it, mocktails, everything but the booze. And we want to push back a little bit on this idea that you have to have alcohol to have fun, that you have to have alcohol to socialize. The times are changing, you know, millennials and, and, you know, Generation Z, they're starting to drink less and, but there's not necessarily a culture that's caught up to that yet. And we just want to offer an environment that says, Y'all, the future is happening. We can still put on great events that don't serve alcohol because we're fun people, period. Love that. Yeah. And if you're not having fun and you're sober, I mean, maybe you're just not fun. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Or, you know, there's just some things, like, I think that it's amazing how what we think about it can keep us stuck. Like if we think we're not going to have fun, we're not going to have fun. If we think that it's going to be amazing, it's going to be amazing. And so right. sometimes I think, you know, people are like, well, I'm just, I'm just not having fun anymore. I was like, well, how much fun was drinking? Like, why did you stop in the first place? So like you, you look back at it through these rose colored glasses that aren't really reality, but then you have all of these beliefs from society that like living alcohol free wouldn't be fun. And you carry those and they're heavy. And they I are. think yeah, when we just get real curious about, okay, might not be amazing, but let me see if it will be. Let me try it out. Let me test it out. Let me add some just level of curiosity here. It really can defuse some of those beliefs. I think one of the things that people do um, that's a mistake is we have a belief like, oh, it's not fun to be sober. And then we come at it like, okay, I'm going to overcome that belief. So I'm going to mantra to myself 10 times a day. Like it is fun to be sober. I'm having so much fun sober. But the problem is that at this deep subconscious level, we don't actually believe that it's not. And so we, we actually create like toxic toxicity in our minds because we we're just trying to directly against a belief that 
um, we hold that, you know, with another belief that's exactly the opposite. And I think the best way to get past that is to say, you know, start to get curious and say things you can believe. Like, I'm going to see if it's fun to go to a music festival sober. I'm going to see if it's fun to attend something like by Southwest and, um, you know, see what, what it could be. And like, just slowly, gently undo some of those thoughts instead of like ramming up against them, you know, but. Right. Well, and there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. I just, I want to point out that I learned pretty quickly that I'm wrong. A lot of the time when I have a thought in my head or I have a belief, a belief isn't necessarily a fact. So when I'm believing that I'm not going to have fun, that is just an idea. That's not a fact. I'm wrong all the time. There are things that I think, and I am way, way off course. All of my thoughts about sobriety before I got sober were totally incorrect. Mm. Once you open your mind and are willing to really look at the big picture and you're really open and not running in with an expectation, it's amazing what will happen when you just open your mind to it. You know, having a good time may not necessarily mean you're, you know, that there's like, you know, house music at a rave and like lights and like 300 sweaty people around you. Maybe, you know, maybe a good time means that you're going to meet five people that you keep in touch with for the, for the rest of your life. Mm. You know, maybe that's a valuable experience at like a sober get together. There are lots of different ways that we can define fun, but man, like expand your definition of fun, be open to growing and changing because otherwise you're just limiting yourself. And the, God, the, the biggest thing I always say on, on the recovery happy hour podcast is just that guys, you can change your mind. If you mm. decide that you want to quit drinking, that alcohol is not going anywhere. Like I just went to Trader Joe's. It's still there. I just checked if you change your mind and you decide that life sucks, then go back to drinking. Like, but it's okay to try it. Give it a solid, a solid open-minded opportunity. And, um, just, you know, sometimes you're wrong period. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's huge. That's so good. So where, um, two, two final questions. First one is where can people find out more about the events, especially if they want to attend? Yeah, so they can, this is Saturday, March 16th in Austin, Texas. It is from 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. You can buy tickets on SoberBySouthwest.com. You can also buy them on Instagram. You can buy them on our Facebook event page and, uh, or Eventbrite. And you can also find any details there. We've got general admission tickets. We've got VIP tickets that offer, you know, you can get cocktail beverage service and a big swag bag. Um, and yeah, we'll have live music all day. It's going to be super, super fun. And I also, um, on the Recovery Happy Hour website, which is the website for my podcast, there's also information there. And I mean, we're, we're whoring this out on like any, you know, channel of social media. So <laughs> if you look up the hashtag Sober by Southwest or Sober XSW, it should, uh, it should take you pretty quickly to somewhere where you can buy tickets. Awesome. Very cool. And so my last question for you, Trish, I always ask this at the end of um, every podcast, but like if you had to go back to the girl, um, you know, 34, who was just, you know, on the 30 day bender or whatever it was that looked like high functioning social drinking and just talk to her about what life is like on the other side here, what would you say? You know, it's funny. I ask, I always 
ask a question like this on my podcast, but it's like, what would you go back and, and tell your younger self? And I don't know that I've ever taken a minute to think about what I would tell me, my 34-year-old self. You know, I'd probably tell her that it's, you will never do anything perfectly. You can't live life perfectly. You can't recover perfectly. You can't drink perfectly. Perfection is out the window. So just abandon that. It's okay if you're not perfect. But yeah, I'd tell her that Manolo Blahniks are not going to heal your broken heart. You know, two bottles of Pinot Grigio are not going to heal your broken heart. Stopping drinking two bottles of Pinot Grigio <laughs> is one step into healing your broken heart. Mm. And getting underneath the alcohol and digging into the things that make you want to drink it so much is how you heal your broken heart. Mm. So good. So good. And so true. I mean, it's like, I always use the analogy of like putting a, you know, alcohol is like putting a bandaid on a festering wound. There's nothing in that bandaid that's going to heal it. It's just going to keep it moist and damp and, and, you know, toxic. And yeah. so you have to take the bandaid off so that it can, you know, see the sun and. A ba yeah. A bandaid is not a tourniquet and I needed a tourniquet. You know, I was just pouring bottles of, of booze on a still beating heart outside of my chest, like sitting on the kitchen counter, thinking that that booze was going to help heal that thing. And uh, it didn't. But, you know, learning how to embrace that broken heart and love it and, you know, God, get rid of all that cheap wine. You know, I've saved almost like $13,000. That's amazing. Yeah. If you know where that money is, though, let me know because I can't find it. <laughs> where did it go? <laughs> Went into it, launching all your businesses. It's where all my money goes. <laughs> it's at Costco. Yes. <laughs> all the Topo Chico I buy in bulk is where it is. Oh, my favorite. So uh, good. There we go. Mm, it's the fizziest. <laughs> so nice. I love it so much, especially the grapefruit one. That's good. All stuff. right. Well, thank you so much, Tricia. This has just been such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And um, definitely, like, I wish I was in Austin because that event sounds just amazing. So. Hey, we'll be doing it again next year, except we'll, um, we'll be official next year. So we'll be allowed to uh, say the fully licensed name in 2020. <laughs> Yay. Awesome. Very cool. Thanks for having me, Annie. Yeah, have a great day. Bye. This has been Annie Grace with This Naked Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more at thisnakedmind.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word.